All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Buckle your safety belts. We about to, we about to do this. <laughs> well, hey, welcome home to each and every one of you. It is great to have you here this morning. Welcome to Northridge Church. If you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be today. I'd encourage you to grab your Bible, your device, and go ahead and turn there. Jump into the Northridge Church app. It's a great place to take notes. You can take those notes to your community group and dive a little bit deeper throughout the week on the message. And if you haven't been with us, we've been on this journey really to Easter. We've been studying the cross, digging deep in the cross and Jesus' final words, the seven statements on the cross. And man, I'm excited because today really leads us to the celebration next Sunday. Next week is Easter. And let me tell you, we're going to party. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And listen, no one shows up to a party without somebody. You know what I'm saying? If you do... That's, that's, a, that's a different problem, okay? And so, hey, this week, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus at our workplace. Let's talk about Jesus in our home. Let's make those invitations because people are actually open to it this time of year. And so let's be the church. Let's be the church, not in the walls, but outside of the walls where God takes us this week. And, you know, we've been wrestling and, and, and digging deep into the cross. And if you, you go to my life and you rewind 10 years, my wife and I, we lived in Georgia, and one thing that I miss about Georgia might surprise you, it's those thunderstorms. In Rochester, we, maybe we get one a year, but in the South, when it's hot and humid, you get these raging, booming storms. And at our house in Georgia, we had a, a back porch, it was screened in, and I used to just love to sit in my chair and watch a storm brew. You probably felt it, let me take you there, right? It's a beautiful, sunny day, about 99 degrees, 100% humidity. Kind of feel like you're walking through jello. That's the south for you. And then all of a sudden, the weather changes and you can feel it, right? The wind starts to blow. You begin to smell what I call worms or rain. You know, you know what smell I'm talking about? And then all of a sudden, the clouds start to drift in. It's getting darker and darker and then the first boom, thunder and lightning. And it goes crazy. And that's kind of the scene of the cross. Right at the end of Jesus' life, the Bible says this. It says, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Look what verse 45 says. It says, the sun stopped shining. And so the backdrop of the cross, we have, always have these pictures of the cross, the three crosses in this beautiful sunny day. And it was that until it changed. Because the sun stopped shining. And this didn't surprise anybody. It shouldn't have surprised anybody because it was predicted, right? We talked about this, Amos 8. It says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so we, we, over the course of these last six weeks, we've talked a little bit about this darkness, right? Maybe this darkness is a symbol of Jesus wearing our darkness, becoming our darkness as he pays for our sin. This was the moment where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he takes on our sin? But maybe there's more to this darkness because maybe this darkness is actually darkness, evil pressing in because I would guess that our enemy, the devil himself, Satan, actually believes in this moment that he's going to be triumphant. Think about it. The Savior of the world, God Almighty, Jesus, is about ready to die. And the darkness of evil believes this is the moment where they're going to be triumphant, where evil wins. 
because God dies. But then something strange happens. So it gets dark, the backdrop of the cross, the sun stops shining, and then verse 45, look what it says. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, this feels kind of odd that we're talking about the sun going down and then draperies. Right, like, hey, my wife's an interior designer. I know a ton about curtains, more than I really want to know. But this feels odd. What the world is happening in the Bible? Sometimes the Bible throws you for a loop. You're like, okay, the sun went down. Now curtains are torn in two. Wow, this is a great story. But what is the significance of this? A curtain being torn in two? Well, you actually have to understand the temple. You see, this curtain was at the temple. And the temple in Old Testament time was the most significant place in all of Judaism. Jewish people would come to the temple oftentimes, and it was the place, the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. In fact, even today, I'll show you a picture of the temple. If you've never been to Jerusalem, it's a pretty amazing place. This is the modern day temple, and right here where my hand is, this is called the Wailing Wall. And Jewish people show up every day to this wall to wail. Why are they wailing? Because you see this thing right here, it's called the Dome of the Rock. That's where the Temple Mount was. That's where they believed the presence of God dwelt in the most holy place. And this Dome of the Rock is a place of Islamic worship. And so the Jewish people mourn at this wall because the place where God's presence dwelt has been taken over. And so if you understand the temple and the curtain, right, there were three significant places in the temple in Old Testament times. The first was the outer courts. This outer court was for every Jewish person. So people from all over uh, Israel would come to the temple, they'd come to the outer courts, and they would often buy their sacrifices to bring to the priests. The second significant place of the temple was called the holy place. This was a place that only priests could go into, and this is where many of the sacrifices were made. But then there was the most significant place of the temple. It was called the most holy place. That was the place where the presence of God dwelt. Only one person could go in one time of year. It was the high priest. And it was such a holy place that when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of humanity, they would tie a rope around the high priest just in case he made a mistake and he would die. They could drag him out because no one else could go in. That's the holiness of God. And in this most holy place where the presence of God dwelt, there was a curtain there. And that curtain represented something. That curtain represented the barrier between God and humanity that sin brought. But at Jesus' death, when it goes dark, guess what happens? That curtain is torn in two because sin, sin's penalty was separation, but Jesus' death brought reunification. You see, at Jesus' death, what happens is that the, the curtain is torn in two, and what it says to you and I is significant, that the way back to God has been made through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, that through me as a sinful man, you as a sinful man or woman, can get back to God through the bridge of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, and the curtain was torn in two. But what is also significant is how the curtain was torn. Matthew gives us a little bit more of an indication. Look what it says. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why is that significant? Because it's a picture. 
It wasn't mankind that went to, uh, to God, up from the bottom to God. No, it was God who came to us from the top to bottom. He tore it to let mankind know that it was he who was responsible for paving a way to get back to him. And so here, we're at the cross. The sun stops shining. The curtain is torn. And Jesus shares his final words. He says this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are the last words Jesus said before he died. And it's interesting, right? It shouldn't surprise anybody that these words are not original to Jesus. He's again quoting the Old Testament. Psalms 31 verse 5, it says this, into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. And here in these words, yet again, we see the the depth of intimacy between God the Father and Jesus, God the Son. Where he says, Father, Daddy, you see this full submission and this full surrender from Jesus and their relationship was tight. It was a father and a son bond that was deep. And after Jesus said these words, it says, when he had said this, he breathed his last. And so in this moment, Jesus dies. And many people believe that the Romans killed Jesus. Others believe that it was the religious leaders that killed Jesus. But here's what we have to understand because both of those statements are not true. Because Jesus wasn't killed, he laid down his life. You see, you cannot kill God. You cannot kill a deity. Jesus willingly sacrificed his life. And you see it in his final words. He says, Father, I commit my spirit to you. There is nothing that humankind could do to get rid of Jesus. Only Jesus could say when his life was going to end. And as we we zoom at the cross one last time, if we spent seven weeks kind of digging in, there's a couple things that I want us to understand about Jesus. I don't want us to miss about Jesus. And the central point of the cross is, is I want you to see about Jesus is that he entrusted himself to his father. It's, it's almost mind-blowing to see Jesus' life. If you study in the Gospels, how committed he was, how, how he lived in obedience, how he surrendered himself in his submission to his father's plans for his life. The cross is a perfect example of that, but let me show you two parts in his life outside of the cross. One when he was a young boy and one right before the cross. So let's take a look at Jesus at 12 years old. What's interesting about the early life of Jesus is we don't have a lot. We have the Christmas story, Jesus being born of a baby, and then there's really not a lot of toddler Jesus or baby Jesus, but we get a glimpse of 12-year-old Jesus. If you know any 12-year-olds, it's kind of the awkward stage, right? It's a little different, but here, what's crazy is what you see in Jesus. So in this story, Jesus, his mom, and his dad are headed, guess where? The temple one of the most significant places. And they would travel to the temple six to 12 times a year for festivals and fulfilling the law. And so his family gets in the caravan and they head to the temple. They travel to Jerusalem. They go to the temple. They do their things and they head home. And so as they're headed home, Mary and Joseph are like, yo, anybody seen Jesus? Where'd Jesus go? They lost Jesus. I mean, of all the people you don't want to lose, it's Jesus. Come on, Mary and Joseph. And so you know what they do? They send out an amber alert, and all of Jerusalem is looking for Jesus. And you can imagine as a a parent, Mary and Joseph are probably a little frustrated with Jesus. 
Jesus, I'm gonna kill you. It's not gonna be like the cross killing. <laughs> so they look, three days. They look for Jesus. For three days, Jesus is missing. And guess where they find him? At the temple. And so Mary and Joseph are like, Jesus, what is wrong with you? Obviously nothing. You didn't do anything wrong because you never did anything wrong. And I'm frustrated because you're missing Jesus. And look what he says to him. He says, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? This is a 12-year-old boy. And guess what he does? He says, you don't understand. Didn't you know I'm here because of my father's plans? And can I tell you, teenager, you can come up with every excuse not to be serious about your faith, but I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't give you an excuse. At 12 years old, he says, you know what? I'm here for a purpose, and that's to glorify God. And so even at 12, I'm going to be that. And I got to tell you, teenager, you can be that today. You can be that today. You can raise the bar for your parents and for your family by being serious about Jesus. At 12 years old, he was like, didn't you know who I am and why I'm here? Let's, let's skip ahead in Jesus' life, right before the cross, right, right before he's arrested, going to stand on trial, to be flogged and go to the cross. Jesus has this human moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, and look what he says to his dad. He says, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. But then here is Jesus' life really displayed. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. You want to sum Jesus' life up, that's it. Dad, Whatever you want, I'll follow. And for every Christ follower, that is our goal. That is our aim. That in life, we would live in, in this way with a purpose that says, God, whatever you have for me, I trust. I'll follow. I'll live in obedience too. Because that's who Jesus was. He's our model. He's our example. Now, you have to ask the question, like, how did Jesus get there? Well, what made Jesus so, so, so bought into his father's plan? Here's the reality. Jesus was confident in his father's plan. Can I tell you, Christ followers, one of the major reasons why we get entangled sin so, in, in, in sin so much is because we've bought the lie that somehow we believe our plans for our lives is better than God's plan. I don't know why, because if you look at our life and you look at the times where we chose to go our way, where did it usually end up? Can I tell you today, what God has in store for you is always better than anything you can dream that you have in store for you. Jesus believed that, and that's why he was willing to follow his father's plan even to a cross. And what amazes me over the last seven weeks as we looked at the cross, as Jesus, and remember what the cross is, it's, it's suffering. Jesus isn't on the cross having a, a jolly good old time. He's been whipped and flogged to basically an inch of his life. He's got a crown of thorns shoved into his head. He's got nails driven in his hands and his feet. Like, it, it ain't a fun time. And what's amazing to me is you look at the cross, you know what you see in Jesus? Confidence. Strength. You know what you don't see in Jesus? Fear. Like, oh, I'm getting ready to die, and I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And like, oh, I'm nervous. You know what you also don't see in Jesus? You don't see Jesus claiming to be a victim? Jesus on the cross, like, I didn't deserve this. Hope you all know this was you, not me. This is injustice. Hey, someone, no. What you see in Jesus on the cross is confidence in what his dad was going to accomplish through him. 
He was so confident that there's a conversation on the cross between two criminals. One rebukes Jesus, makes fun of Jesus. The other believes in Jesus. And look at the confidence of Jesus' own words. He looks at the criminal and he says, truly I tell you, you're going to be with me in paradise today, baby. Today. You know what that is? That's confidence. He looked at the guy who's suffering next to him. He's like, hey, it's about to be over soon. And it's going to get real good. And it amazes me, in the midst of the turmoil of his life, can I ask you, when you are suffering, when you are going through hell on earth, are you confident? You can be because of Jesus. And even when it comes to death, this is so countercultural. Because guess what scares us to death? The idea of death. Many people in our culture and in the church, when it comes to the topic of dying, it's one of the things that they're afraid of the most. In fact, just the, the other week, I was talking to a friend. And I don't know how we got on the topic of death, probably because we were reminiscent about my dad. He knew my dad, and so we were talking about my dad and, and the idea of the topic of death brought up. And he looked at me, he's like, dude, I, I can't even tell you. Like, the thought of death terrifies me. He's not a super healthy guy, and so I think he thinks about death pretty often. And, and he, he is so caught up in fear when it comes to death, and he couldn't believe, I looked at him and was like, listen, I'm not scared to die. Like, honestly, like, death doesn't, I'm not, I'm not afraid of, of dying. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I got young kids. I want to grow old with them, and I want to watch them become leaders for Jesus Christ, and I want to spend a lot of time with my wife, right? I want all those things, but when it comes to dying, ain't no fear here. You want to know why? Because of the confidence of the cross, because of the confidence of Jesus and his father's plan. And, and here's the reality. Death is hard. It brings grief and in hardship. But even the apostle Paul, look what he says about death. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's not talking about naps here. He's talking about people who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, when you grieve without hope, guess what you lack? Confidence. He says, you can have confidence, you can have hope, for since we believe, where does that confidence come from? He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 18, he says this, he says, encourage one another with these words. Remind yourself of the cross, because it will breed confidence in you. And so the backdrop of the cross goes black. The sun stops shining. The curtain is torn in two. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. But what's interesting is what happens next. People begin to respond to Jesus' death. Look at verse 47. It says, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. And so just as Jesus dies, people begin to, to respond to his death. The first one is odd, right? It's a centurion, a Roman guard. And this guard had probably seen crucifixion after crucifixion. This was a, a normal practice for a Roman centurion. In fact, probably for some of the crucifixions, he was the one nailing the nails through people's hands. And so this wasn't like a, a murder thing that made him upset. He saw murder after murder. He probably killed people. The Romans were ruthless. But today was different for him because he recognized who was on that cross. He said, surely this was a righteous man. 
and he praised God. And then a bunch of other people began to respond. They, they walk up to the cross and it, the scriptures say they beat their breasts and the, way they did the, the reason why they did this was out of guilt and shame of what they just accomplished. And what you see is people responding to Jesus' death. And the truth is, is we've spent seven weeks looking at the cross for the same reckoning in my life and in your life. Because let me ask you, how will you respond to the cross of Jesus? What will your response be as you look at Jesus' death in your place? How will it change you? How will you respond to it? Because when it comes to the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, there is no neutral ground. You either believe in it, surrender to it, follow it, or you walk away from it. Many people in that day are unlike the centurion and are unlike those people who beat their breasts. They just walked away that day like some ordinary man had died and they missed it. How will you respond to the cross? How do we respond to the cross? Well, I think it depends on who you are. You see, I think for some of you today, the Spirit of God has been drawing you to Himself. I believe this. This is the whole very reason why you're sitting watching online or in one of these seats. It's not an accident that you're listening to my voice today. It is the power of the Spirit of God drawing your life to His. Through circumstances, through people you have been talking to, through the messages that you've been listening to, God wants your attention. And He wants your attention because He wants you to believe in the message of the cross. Your response is, will you believe? Will you take your doubts and your questions and will you transfer them into faith and belief in what Jesus did for you? The Apostle Paul says it beautifully. He says this, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. Now you might not think you need saving. What are you saved from? Well, what put Jesus on the cross? Our sin. Your sin, my sin. And you gotta come to a place in your life where you look at the cross and you realize, I'm broken. I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. My sin is too big, it's too strong. It's kept me captivated in slavery, but Jesus left heaven to come to earth to die in my place for my sin and to defeat it through the resurrection. And all I have to do is cry out to him. All I have to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. I believe in your cross and your resurrection. Invade my life, become my forgiver. Help me walk away from my sin and be the leader of my life. And the Bible says, when you declare that with your mouth and you believe it in your heart, God saves your soul. Come on, that's good, church. And I'm telling you today, there is somebody listening right now. I don't know who you are, but God does. And he wants you to desperately make that choice. To step in, to be saved by the grace and the mercy of a loving God. But yet for many of us today, we made that choice. We've declared with our mouth and we have belief in our heart. And what's so frustrating to me is so many Christians believe that the cross is for salvation, but the cross should bring sanctification. 
As the, we look at the cross of Jesus, it should make me want to look more like Jesus. And so for our Christ followers today who have put our belief in the cross, can I ask you a question? Has your belief in the cross transformed every part of your life? You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to be freed from sin, but still flirt with sin. See, so many Christians today, we like to be freed from the sins that we don't enjoy, but we like to be captivated by the sins that we do enjoy. But Jesus says, no, I didn't die to just transform part of you. I died to transform all of you. And can I ask you, Christ follower, what area of your life has yet to be transformed by the cross? What sin are you still flirting with, enjoying, liking? And Jesus is like, what are you waiting for? Is it the entertainment that you watch? The things that you watch on Netflix and Hulu and all the shows that you're like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I actually think it is to Jesus. And maybe that needs to be transformed in your life. Maybe it's the way you spend your money or what you spend your money on or your lack of generosity. Or maybe today it's the way you speak to your spouse or your children or the way you parent. The way you go to work is completely different than who you are on Sunday with your hands in the air. Jesus says, I, I want to transform all of you. I want you to look like me. I want you to get to the place where you look at God and say, not my will, God, but yours. So what area hasn't the cross transformed in you? But maybe another question we need to ask is have you taken your eyes off the cross? You see, I, I believe the cross is a picture that we should daily gaze upon. Because at the cross, it reminds us of the gravity of our sin and what it did to Jesus. And I think for many of us, it's easy to look at the cross on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, remind yourself of the cross. Because when we take our eyes off the cross, I think it does a couple things. I think it causes doubt in many people's minds. I would bet some of you feel that doubt. Because you look at your past and you wonder, is God big enough to conquer my past. And I get it, right? You look at me and you're like, oh, I know you're a pastor, Drew, you don't get it. But my sin is huge. You don't understand the choices I've made. You don't know what I've been involved with. You're right, I don't. But I know how big and how amazing and how much grace God will pour over your life today. And so stop looking at your past and look at the cross where your past has been paid for in full. Or some of us, Right, we get our eyes off the cross and we begin to doubt the faith that we once held so closely to. This is rampant in our culture right now. Christians, strong followers of Christ are doing this thing they call destructive, or I don't even know how they, 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 they deconstruct their faith. It's like, you don't need to deconstruct it, God already built it. And this is what's happening is so many people are losing their faith, guess why? Because their eyes are on the hypocrisy of sinful Christians. And can I tell you, when you watch flawed people, you're gonna get flawed results. But when you look at the cross and see a flawless savior, he'll never let you down. And so have you taken your eyes off of the cross? Because here's what I want you to understand. If you get nothing out of the last seven weeks, here's what I want you to know. At the cross, you and I have been forgiven. At the cross of Jesus Christ, We've been given confidence and hope of life after death. That at the cross, your Savior took your punishment in your place. 
That at the cross, you have a savior who gets you, who identifies with you, who empathizes that you can relate to. That at the cross, your sin, past, present, and future has been paid in full. And at the cross, you have a savior who laid down his life to give you yours. Let's pray together. God, sometimes <laughs> thank you doesn't feel like enough. And God, honestly, we can say thank you all day long, but maybe our lives should be the thing declaring thank you. And God, I, I just want to pray right now specifically for, for a couple people. I pray right now, God, for the person who is going back and forth right now. Should I trust Jesus? Should I not trust Jesus? And I pray that your spirit would move in their heart, God, that you would draw them so tightly to you that today would be the day where they cross that line of faith and where they say yes to a savior who died in their place and rose again three days later and give them life. I pray you'd get rid of the old and you'd bring new into their life today, God. God, I pray for the Christian who's taken their eyes off of you that we would gaze back upon the cross and it would firm the doubts that we have, that it would knock down the questions and God, our confidence would be built in you, not what other Christians do. And God, I pray today for the person who's flirting with sin. Through the things that they watch, through the things that they see, through the way they speak, the way they spend their money. I pray that today we would leave and take a good hard look at the things that you've set us free from that we need to walk in freedom to. So help us, God. We can't do it without you. In Jesus' name, amen.